You've come for a great day. In fact, I think this may be one of the best days in our teaching on this interesting little topic, how we got here, how we got here. See, all of us want to know how in the world did we get to where we are? After all, I don't have to tell you, and I did mention it last week, and I'll say it again today, uh, the world's kind of nuts, isn't it? You can give an oh yeah if you think so as well. I mean, after all, right now, you turn on the TV, and within 15 to 30 seconds, you want to throw the TV out the window based on what you see on it, the fighting, the disregard for human life, the disrespect, the things that you kind of go, that's not what I expected. And it's not just the television, of course. You fire up your web browser, you pull up the news, you see what's happening in our city, around our country, around our world, and it is enough to make you say, how did we get here? What happened? In fact, it's, it's kind of curious to me. There's this, there's this little song that we sing growing up. In fact, this one kind of flies in the face of what we see. In fact, it kind of articulates what we hope to see and what we expect. In fact, you may have heard it growing up. Just join me if you know this one. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And we say, oh, we love the little children. But then they grow up and they become jerks. And we see it on TV. In fact, if I were to ask you what is the one thing, what is the one thing that causes so much of the stress, so many of the problems, so much of the turmoil in this world, here's the answer I know many, many, many of us would be able to give. It's a one-word answer. The one big problem with the world, most of us would say, people. Can't live with them? Yeah, you might be able to live without them is the way we think. How did we get here, though? Was it supposed to be this way? And next week, we're going to jump into the why things are the way they are, what went wrong, how it'll all get better. We'll be there next week. But before we can talk about that piece today, we need to address the mess of humanity with clarity of why we are here. And more importantly, even than than sort of a generic why, like how did we get here, more of the deep fundamental questions What is it about you and me that is worth valuing? Is there anything? Because see, here's the the big idea. Genesis. Genesis is this major book that is trying to give a group of people clarity for how they got to where they are. Just by way of reminder, last week we talked about this. Genesis is part of a five-book series. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah or Pentateuch. The four books, Exodus... Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those tell the story of Israel in the desert after they have left Egypt, desert, going into Canaan, the promised land. And as a people, they were going, how did we get here? What happened? And Moses, inspired by God, compiling the stories of the people from the centuries past, begins to write the book of Genesis, which is the how they got their book. Chapter 12 through 50 tells the story of God's work with a particular family, Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, and how through them he would fix what went wrong. 
But what went wrong, the prequel to the prequel, is chapters 1 through 11. It is the story of creation, the creation of man, of the universe, the fall of man. When the first man killed another man, the flood, the Tower of Babel, it's epic stories trying to express to a people, this is how we got here. Because if we want to get to where God is taking us, we need to know where we came from. How many of us know that unless you diagnose the problem correctly, you'll always get wrong results? We need to know where we came from. And so we said last week that this little section of scripture was written by Moses, compiled by him using the oral stories of the people inspired by God. He recounts the beginning all the way through their present moment. And he's writing to a group of people, the Israelites, who have just left bondage in Egypt for many years. And they're about to go into Canaan, which is full of nations who also were very pagan in their worldview. And here in the desert, how many of us know God touches us, changes us often in the desert? He writes down, this is who you really are. Here's how you got here. And the big idea is he's trying to correct worldviews. He's trying to correct these different faulty worldviews. In fact, we talked about one of them last week. There are three main worldviews. This is all set up, so hang with me, guys. We're going to dive in in a moment. But the ancient pagan culture was the first worldview, and that's really the one that Moses is attempting to address. The ancient pagan culture taught that the gods created us to serve them, that you are the result of the gods creating you simply as some sort of beast to work for them, to serve them. Your value is what you can accomplish, what you do. And the story of the pagan worldview, the one that was common in Egypt and the one that would be common in Canaan that they needed to be prepared for was the view that there are a bunch of bickering gods who fought and killed one another and created the universe out of the fallen gods And that humans were the result, according to one tradition, that you and I are the result of the blood of one slain demon god. Doesn't that just get you up in the morning? And then there's others who say, no, you are the result. Humanity was created from all the tears of all the gods, but you're here to serve them. Now, since then, that's not the dominant cultural view that we hear or have to press against. Rather, the one we hear is more of the atheistic worldview, which says that we are cosmic accidents. That you and I, we are simply the result of time and space and matter thrown together, spun in the cosmos, and we came about something sparked life which created this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing, and then you. Again, that doesn't get you up in the morning. Both of these worldviews, both of these worldviews devalue humanity. The first one says your value is dependent on how much you can produce, how good you are at serving. So if you are strong and smart, you're valued. But if you're weak and stupid, then you are worthless and your life is not worth anything. The atheistic worldview is even worse because it doesn't say that someone created you. Rather, nothing created you. And so you have no intrinsic value. In fact, the very honest and most logical atheists will tell you that you do not have any intrinsic worth, value, or meaning. The best you can do is to create meaning in your life. And how do you do that? Well, you have to be strong and you have to be smart. But if you're not strong and you're not smart, then you cannot create meaning that lasts. I love what the late... 
Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, he put it this way, he said, scientifically, I see no cause for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Here's what he's saying. Based on science, I cannot claim that any person has intrinsic value greater than a monkey or a speck of sand because if you are simply the result of cosmic accident, so is the baboon and so is the grain of sand. You see how this is so important that if you have a misunderstanding, a bad worldview, one that does not comport with reality, it will leave you both feeling without value and dignity and treating others without value and dignity. Or worse, you will give them value and dignity so long as they serve or are smart and handsome or pretty and strong. Do you see why your worldview matters, church? There's one last one in all this. There's one last one, and this is the one that Moses is going to, with a big statement that we're going to dive into. He's going to say, your value, your value comes from God because God created us on purpose because he loves us. You are not, according to scripture, you are not the result of gods who didn't want to do work and so they created you. And you are not the result of cosmic coincidence. You are here on purpose and that changes everything. And so once again, let's step back into the story, shall we? Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to see just a couple verses here, but this is what he says, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, then the Lord God, remember chapter 1, God creates everything in this poetic form, then chapter 2 zooms in and then speaks in detail about the creation of humanity. Chapter 1 is a big picture, chapter 2 is a close focus, and he says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. First thing I want you to notice here is this little word, dust. Everyone say, dust. Everyone look to your neighbor and say, you're looking dusty today. Go ahead. Now, I didn't say crusty. I said dusty. You're looking a little dusty. Here's the first thing we need to see. Creation has a very clear picture of your dignity, but it also is realistic with your humanity and your breakability. We are dust. We are vulnerable. That should humble us. No one should ever pound their chest and say, well, I'm better dust than you because we're all Dust. Now, here's the other thing this means, though. If you are dust, if you are created, then your value is not determined by how strong, smart, pretty you are. The point he's going to make is that we are all dust. Your value does not come from what you can create or how good you are. It comes from something deeper, meaning it is not something you create cultivate. It is something that was given to you. Notice the second thing. Not only are you dust, but it says the Lord God formed. You see this word formed. And there's another word, breathed. God formed and breathed in each one of us. Now, let's just play around for a moment here. This is one of those beautiful things. All of the Genesis account, you have God repeatedly saying, let us or let there be. And it was. God speaks and creation blooms. But isn't it interesting that you can have a conversation from a distance? I can talk to someone. You know, I could call out Ronnie over here and say, hey, bud, how you doing? Doing all right? 
Good, good. You guys going to lunch after this or are you going to go home? Okay, very good, very good. See, we can have a conversation from a distance. You can talk to someone from far away, but you can only form and touch someone up close. He speaks to create everything. But when it comes to you, as one author put it, he put his hands deep into the soil of your life. God is intimately connected. There is a dignity to you because God chose to form you. And not only did he form you, but he breathed into you this moment where he exhaled and Adam inhaled and the spark of life began and this form became human. I remember a few years ago, I was at this event where someone needed CPR. Someone quickly came over, began compressions, and then began mouth-to-mouth, and they were putting it in. There was a mouth-to-mouth, face-to-face closeness, not just hands, but face-to-face. Understand the very first thing Adam saw when he opened his eyes was the face of God. This is how you and I were meant to live in the beginning. This was how it was supposed to be. In other words, if you were to define you and me, we might say it this way. All people are dusty and dignified. We are humbled but honored because God created us. Yes, we desperately need Almighty God to hold us and sustain us. But the good news is he breathed dignity and life into you, but not just you, all people. And for that, we need to go back to chapter 1. Let's dive back into some of those verses that we skipped last week. How about that? Let's go to verse 26. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 puts it this way. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now, who's this let us? That's weird. See, to the ancient people, when they heard let us, they would have heard the royal we, the way that a king might speak to his court. Let us do this. Let us do that. That's how they would have heard it. But on this side of creation, this side of the cross, we know and we hear the Trinity, the Father, Son, Spirit say, let's do something special. Let's create this little mud ball and call it man. And some of you mamas go, why are our kids always so dirty? They're just coming from what they were. They're just going back into what they were. That's why. Let's create mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Now listen, as much as I may try, I cannot express to you what's going on here. Not in our language anyway. There are certain things that are lost in translation, and this is one of the major points that we never catch as English-speaking, Western-minded people. But this is a major moment in the story. To explain that, we're going to have to do just a very brief Hebrew grammar lesson. I know some of your brains are already cramping at that thought, but it'll be okay. Stay with me. Can you stay with me for just a couple minutes? Yeah, yeah, some of you are going, "Mm mm-mm, okay, stay with me anyway. The chapter one of Genesis is a Hebrew poem, 
And we kind of pick up on this, don't we? Because it has this thing, this repetition over and over. Certain phrases are repeated. Uh, You have phrases like, and God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning. Do you know this? And God said, and it was so, and God said, and it was so, and it was good, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning. Do you hear the repetition? There's this movement that goes on. Are you ready for the Hebrew word for this? This is called a vital chain. It is what scholars point out. This is the backbone of Hebrew poetry. You would have them kind of just a rhythm, a repetition. To be able to articulate this is something big and they would build in its intensity and it would go, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And I remember one guy made this point and said, it sounds like, this form of writing sounds like the way a middle school girl tells a story. <gasps> and we were at school and then Bobby came into the room and then Susie said this, but then he didn't like that. And so Sally got upset and she went, well, I've never. And then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. <gasps> That's what's going on here. It's building. But it's not just middle school girls, is it? Musicians do this all the time to build drama and to build flair. For instance, like this. You hear it building. It keeps building. Something's going to happen. You feel that it's growing. There's something that's about to happen until... Until... You hear it? Okay. And then you have to break. And it just keeps going. So you have this growth and this ramping and this... Now I can see some of you, your hair starting to fall out. Go ahead. Just turn that off. Go ahead. Okay. But did you hear it? That is a modern English form of a Vyactal chain. It's over and over, come alive, come alive, come alive. And it's building to a break, this pinnacle of the song. Now, and I know some of you are sitting there, you're leaning over to your neighbor, you're at home, and you're going, that scared me. So let's do something for everyone else in this room. Are you ready? Go ahead. Oh, 1990s. You have you hear this? There's sort of a refrain. And I hope. And I wish you. And I wish. I hope. I wish. There's this repetition to it, isn't it? And it's it's building. If you know the songs, Jesus is coming. So what do you want to tell us, Whitney? Come on. Give it to us. Give it to us. Well, wait a minute, I wasn't done yet, fellas, but okay. Did you feel it? It grew, it built, the song was going to a point. You say, well, so what is the point, Josh? The point is Genesis 1 is building, it's building, there's repetition, and it's going somewhere. It is building to a 
point. Don't miss this. You want to know where the pinnacle of the song is of God's creation. He steps on the scene. He begins to utter this poem of creation. You the point where he has the breakout key chain, stop the music, bring us home, Whitney moment. It's right here. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. If you were to read this in the Hebrew, you'd be going, you're saying that the point of all this is God wanted to make us? Yeah. Yeah. You are the point. Now, we messed it all up, and we'll get into that next week, but you need to understand, like a parent preparing the nursery to bring home their new child, God created the cosmos, not because he just needed more scenery, but he was setting the stage, creating the space for you. By the way, this explains all those scientific questions we ask about the fine-tuning theory and why is everything the way it is, because God is setting the stage for you and for me. This has immense implications. Implications. This is massive implications, does it not? In fact, here's, here's what you need to hear is all of this is leading to you and me in the image of God, this word image, that's the word zelum. Everyone say zelum. Zelum. It referred to a statue or a uh, carving of some sort depicting the royalty over the kingdom. In the ancient world, only the kings, only the royalty were considered deity, worth anything, valued. And many in the kingdom would never even meet or see the king. And so the king would have crafted images of himself to be placed all over his kingdom so that no matter where you went, you would know what the king looks like. And this is the image God uses to describe you and me. You are an image of God in your unique shape, size, personality. God has crafted you and wired you so that the cosmos themselves would say, that's what God looks like. Wow. That is what you and all of humanity was intended to do. This is why God created you and me. This has massive implications, doesn't it? For instance, this has implications for race, doesn't it? This has massive implications. Notice this word right here, mankind, them, them. It's not just Adam and Eve. It's for everyone that God has created all people in his image, whether they live up to the image or not. So this has implications for race, how we view other people. This is why racism is a sin. Can I get an oh yeah? And it doesn't matter your color. Remember the song. Red, yellow, black, brown, white. They are precious in his sight. This means that if you elevate one group because of their skin color or devalue a group because of their skin color, that's called racism and it's a sin and Christians ought never have anything to do with it. So let's just, let's just play the game out real fast here. Should we ever discriminate against a black person? Yes or no? no. Correct. It's no. We should never. Should we ever discriminate against a brown person? No. What about a white person? Red, yellow, anyone? All have been made to be image bearers of God. This is why we do not elevate one group or devalue another group. 
This has implications not just for race, but do you notice these two words, male and female? Notice this. God did not just make one gender. He made two. He made boys and he made girls. How many of the boys are glad that God made girls? Can I get a, uh-huh? I mean, come on. I'm so glad God didn't just put a bunch of smelly dudes together. It would be, well, I mean, we'd, we'd fish a lot. That'd be something. But God gave men and women. And we're not the same. I don't care what culture says. Men cannot be women. Women cannot be men. We are different. We are made in the image of God, but different. This means there are some parts of God's personality and character that men alone cannot see. There are certain characteristics of God that women alone cannot see. We need each other. And by the way, there's this one little phrase in chapter 2 where it talks about God creating Eve and it says that he took from Adam. Do you remember what part of his body he took to create Eve? The rib, that's right. Now why? I don't know. But he said he took the rib. Did did, did it mean that he just took a rib or multiple ribs or did he? I I don't know, but here's the point. Theologians point this out. Notice God took from the side. He did not take from Adam's head. Otherwise, Eve would be greater than or over Adam. He did not take from Adam's foot. Otherwise, woman would be under men. He took from the side because we were to be complementary equals, equally valued, equal dignity. Different jobs, sure. There are things my wife does that I just can't do well. There's some things that I do better than her. At least she lets me believe it. Equal but unique and valued. This has implications not just for race and gender. This has implications for how we honor the elderly. Can I get an amen from the old folks in the room? (laughs) No one wants to do that one. Okay. (laughs) Honoring the elderly. Why is that? There's this misnomer in our culture that says, if you are over a certain age, you are no longer of value. You say, I haven't heard that. Yes, you have. Do you know why? You don't see anyone getting plastic surgery to look older. You don't see anyone say, you know what, instead of liposuction, could you add a few more wrinkles in? I think I need one here, here, you know, hey, Macarena. I mean, that's not happening. We honor certain ages, don't we, in this culture? And at some point, and it is a sin, it is wrong, but we look at people who are older and instead of honoring them for their life of service or their life of commitment or for the fact that they're simply made in the image of God, we say, that's enough. Let's listen to the young folk. See, listen, you don't age out of being made in the image of God, church. This has implications for race, for gender, for how we honor the elderly. It also has massive implications for how we protect the unborn. By the way, just as you don't age out of being honored in the image of God, you don't have to wait to a certain age to be considered the image of God. We treat all, including the unborn. See, pagan cultures, atheistic cultures say your value is what you can produce which is why the elderly, the disabled, the poor, the unborn are not valued as much in those cultures. But in the Christian culture, in the one that says we are created in the image of God, we do not value some over others. Instead, we say all are to be valued, all have dignity. Yes, they're dusty, but they are dignified, for they have been made in the image 
of God. This has massive implications for how we care for the poor and the disabled, how we take care of nature and steward it. Nature is not God. We don't worship nature, but we honor the creation in so far as we take care of it. God gave us a good gift. How many of you parents, you give your kids a good gift, you see it on the floor, you say, that's now mine again. Why? You want them to honor what you give them and value it. This is a massive point. The problem, yeah, people have messed things up, but church, we honor all because all have been made in the image of God. So we are all dusty and dignified, but we're equally valued image bearers of God Almighty. That's what this passage is teaching us, friends. But there's one more thing. There's one more thing. Are you ready? You're not just here to sit and soak for 70, 80 years and then die and go home to heaven. You're here for a purpose. You say, what is that? Okay, ready? Verse 28, notice what he says now. God blessed them, who? All humanity, Adam and Eve, the progenitors of all humanity. God blessed them and said to them, fill the earth. This means have babies. You are going to have to fill this wild space because you're going to subdue it and rule over it. Now, to rule over it and to subdue it does not mean that you harm it or that you are abusive. It's the idea of taming the chaos as God did in creation. He now says, you get to do what I did. You get to do what I did. You get to be a part of the creative order of organizing, of fixing, of being a part of the solution. He says, you get after it. In other words, we are all dusty and dignified, equally valued image bearers created to cultivate. You have a job. And the reason we all look different, have different backgrounds and experiences and different gifts and different challenges is because we each play a unique role in cultivating the creation that God has given to us. And guess what? The job hasn't gotten any smaller since sin entered the world. It has gotten bigger. And by the grace and power of God, working through us, through his Holy Spirit, he has called you and me to bring light, to bring life, to share the hope of Jesus Christ with this world. That's why we're here. And we're to do it by honoring all people. So final point. People aren't the problem. You say, wait a minute, what about sin? We're going to talk about that, and yeah, we brought that into the world. But here at the very beginning, people were the point. It was a good father who said, I want kids, and I'm going to set it up, and it's going to be great. So what this means this week, you're going to deal with some people who are a little prickly. If you say, I don't know any prickly people, and you're probably the prickly people for a bunch of other folk. <laughs> but you're going to deal with some prickly people, aren't you? There are going to be moments that you're not very pretty either. You need to remember a couple things. Number one, God made you. You are infinitely valuable to him. And God made that prickly person. That prickly person is infinitely valuable to God. And we show honor and dignity to all people whether or not they choose to live up to the dignity given to them by God. Because they and all of us were made in the image of God.